Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now in the studio with me, and I do mean in the studio, which is uh, great to have them actually in the studio. Dr. Laura, good morning. I'm really excited to come in and not be Zooming from my bedroom. It's so exciting. Yeah. Uh, us too, because usually your internet connection was a bit dodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here I am, IRL, <laughs> and loving the chats already. Yeah, I think most of the listeners are like, oh, they're talking about that again. But this is exciting. Yeah, it um, is. Haven't seen you, and actually, I bumped into you the other day on the Melbourne Uni campus, which was weird. We almost ran into each other. But other than that, we haven't seen each other in a long time. So it's kind of cool. Dr. Ray, good morning. Dr. Shane, lovely to see you both. Nice yeah. to, you know, not be on Zoom, but. Uh, also, I had to plan, you know, you actually have to plan about, you know, being ready and somewhat groomed by the time you need to leave the house. This is yeah. all new for me. Yeah, it's uh, different. I, uh, I gave a plenary talk at La Trobe Uni on Friday, and I had to give them a little caveat at the start of the talk. I said, look, there is a chance halfway through this talk, I'm just going to take my shoes off because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to it. I, I like having my shoes we off like these days. We like to be comfortable Yeah, now. we're comfy, you know. So anyway, we've got a big show today planned, folks. We are going to be speaking to Amanda McKenzie, who's the CEO of the Climate Council, about some stuff that apparently happened in Scotland recently. So we'll get the uh, all of the details on that, and then we'll be speaking with a research from Flinders University about um, wind farm noise, which is interesting. Uh, Don't worry. It's all good news. Um, Yeah, we sleep right through it just like babies. It's fantastic. So we'll be uh, chatting about that a bit later, but we're going to start off with some news. Did you two work out between you who was going first? Uh, I believe I am, Dr. Dr. Ray, over to you, mate. All right. Well, I have an exciting discovery in the world of dinosaurs. So this will affect, um, be interest to scientists, dinosaur scientists, uh, people that are interested in, in prehistoric animals, and of course, Children from the ages of five to ten, um, and, and this is actually about the ankylosaur. Which, for you know, if you you don't remember, and and oddly enough, we can rely on Jurassic Park for this if we want. The ankylosaur, of course, is a very armored, low to the ground herbivore dinosaur with a ball-like tail, a, a big hard ball on the end of its tail that it uses as a weapon for defense. Yeah. I mean, my technical term with that is a whacking tail. Whacking tail. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, interestingly enough, this story was fantastic because the actual title of the article was bizarre tail weaponry in a transitional ankylosaur from sub-Antarctic Chile. Hmm. And I kind of went, bizarre? I mean, to put bizarre in the middle of a, at the start of a, a scientific <laughs> article is always interesting. And so the um, ankylosaurs are actually predominantly from north, um, uh, the northern hemisphere. But there are a few in the southern hemisphere um, from the, uh, of course, uh, large continent of Guandana, which would have had parts of Australia, South America, Africa, all together. And, and the thing is, we're... We would really like to know more about the ankylosaurs from the southern hemisphere because it would help us understand the branching and evolution of them in the northern hemisphere. Uh, But we haven't had great luck in discovering them. There's actually one in the Antarctic ankylosaur, the Antarctopelta. I'm going to kill that name, um, which uh, they found, but they never could quite make sense of it all. They're like... They weren't sure if they found bones from that and like a marine reptile because there were things they couldn't sort out. And so there's been quite a, a, a question mark over the southern hemisphere ankylosaur. And I know it's keeping us all up nights. But 
What actually happened was they actually had this fantastic discovery in the Mangellans region in Chile, which is the southern tip of South America, where they found an entirely, almost entirely intact skeleton of a new species of ankylosaur called the Stegorus. And what was interesting about this ankylosaur is its tail weaponry. It is not the whacking ball that uh, Dr. Shane mentioned. It's actually a far more disturbing weapon, which is more like a flat club with spikes coming out of it laterally. It's fused dorsal bones. Mm. And um, it, the, the authors made an analogy to an Aztec weapon, which of which I can't pronounce, but it's a wooden club with obsidian blades yeah. sticking out the sides of it. And, and, and it was, of course, very disturbing. We're like, wow, that, that would probably be quite a weapon for an animal. But, but it also brought into relief what was going on with the other ankylosaurs in the Southern Hemisphere, including finally figuring out that actually the ankylosaur skeleton was not a marine reptile. That was just the bits of the tail they couldn't make sense of. And it's also defined this branching between how we define ankylosaurs now. We now have par ankylosauria, which is the ones from the southern hemisphere, and par there means on literally it's on the side. And then, of course, for those of us that are that are true ankylosaur fans and a little nervous how dinosaurs get reclassified, don't worry about that because the the northern hemisphere ankylosaurs are now the u u ankylosauria which means true ankylosaurus, so for those of you that are okay. <laughs> right. but, but it also brings in relief understanding a little bit more about the lineage of these early ankylosaurs, which doesn't just include the Antarctic ankylosaur, but also includes the only Australian ankylosaur, the Cunbarasaurus. It, that's actually how that's said, by the way. Oh, okay. Because um, I kind of <laughs> went, okay. So, but it, it's just fascinating to me that by discovering one skeleton, they can make sense of so many more. And we're still learning things as, as we're still digging things out of the rock. We can still start to understand how dinosaurs have evolved. And um, for those ankylosaur fans out there, pretty exciting developments, I think. Yeah, I love it. I grew up in the west of Melbourne, so we call them ankylosaurs, but that could be a west, a west thing. Um, but they're... Uh, they're amazing. They're amazing. And the tails, like Stegosaurus is another one with these big bloody spiky things yeah. on the tail. Like they're yeah, yeah. herbivores ready to go head to head. That's what I call so, them. So Ankylosaur, Ankylosaur, that may be just the way, similar to how I, I continue to mess up Melbourne no, suburbs. No, you're good. I've heard, I've heard it both ways. So uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's just my, my up, you know, my sort of bogan upbringing. Uh, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? I can't follow that, you know? Like it's a dinosaur with a weapon as a tail. Yeah. Like there's yeah. no news that can trump this. And actually... I saw the pictures and it's really cool. Like, this isn't just like spikes on a tail. This is a full on like weapon in, embedded. It was amazing. The full on. Um, so, news that I saw, which um, I actually thought was really, really neat, was um, a new study published in Nature Communications from researchers from the Francis Crick who came up with a new strategy for gene editing to create same sex litters. And the reason that why we would even want this, why we would care, is say in farming, we know that like so many male chicks just have to be slaughtered because you just want the females for the eggs. So you just, you know, mm. at birth, there's a lot of animals that are culled. And also for research, for example, if you're working on breast cancer, you might just want female animals, um, prostate cancer, male animals. And so there's this gender disparity. And, and so to prevent the culling of all these animals at birth, you could really, like, it could be massive for animal welfare if you could just give birth to just a litter of female mice, for example. Okay, so how are you going to do it? So... We know that sex chromosomes des determines whether we are going to be a female or a male. If you're a female, you have two X chromosomes. If you're a male, you have an X and a Y chromosome. And the researchers here did something really, really um, cool. They used CRISPR-Cas9 in a very different way. So um, 
Most of you will have heard of CRISPR-Cas9. It is just an amazing gene deletion tool which has been used for so many different things across the globe now, recently won the Nobel Prize. Um, And so it's a gene editing tool that consists of two components. One is a targeting DNA, is a targeting molecule that targets the DNA and binds, and one is molecular scissors. It's a cutting agent, it's an enzyme called Cas9. And what they did to make this work is they split this editing tool in half where they embedded the targeting sequence on one chromosome, say the male, and the cutting part on the female. So you only get activation of the CRISPR-Cas9 machinery in the embryo. So it's only when these two come together. And so what they did was they, um, they targeted a gene specifically that prevents embryo development. So the embryos just wouldn't carry on really, really early on, just after a few weeks. And so... Um, but what, amaz- what is really amazing here is that because there's competition between embryos upon implantation, you just lose very early on those embryos that aren't going to be viable. So um, how this works is if you just want a male-only litter, you embed um, the machinery on the X. Oh, sorry, on the, um, if you want male-only, you embed on the X. Right, So then you get XY, mum, dad. And if you want to get a female-only litter, you knock out a gene on the Y. So then you get an XY. And then, because you're naturally going to get this sort of competition for the amount of embryos that can implant, you just get a large female litter or a large male litter, for example. And it was 100% effective. The reason also why this is really awesome is that when people think about CRISPR-Cas9, there's that issue that mutations are going to be carried on throughout generations. Mm. But here, all the offspring would only have one component. So it's a very specific way just to get a bunch of same-sex litters without mutations being passed on through generations where you would have a permanent deactivation of a gene. So I thought that, you know, it's something where you could immediately see the next steps of this being used, particularly in academic research, to create um, single-sex litters. And I think that's a really amazing next step to conserve the amount of animals that are um, put into research. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Anything we can do that make the situation for them um, less problematic? I'm being very polite there. Um, we should. But also the chicks, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about the male chicks? The male chicks. Got to take care of those male chicks. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're going to take a break, folks, and uh, hopefully when we come back, we'll be speaking to the CEO of the Climate Council um, about, uh, well, how amazing Australia is, I suspect. Yeah. Can you can you hear that? Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we hear you. Though, you get it? Did everyone get that? Okay, folks, back in the sec, here's some tunes. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the CEO of the Climate Council on the line. Not sure why. Storms everywhere. Who knows what's going on? Maybe not in sunny Melbourne. But uh, we will keep trying. And we'll do our best. But anyway, we uh, we did get an interesting message come through on our Twitter feed with regards to your story, Dr. Laura. So you've just you've unhatched some eggs that unhatched. Were... <laughs> uh, now it's it's an interesting thing for us to discuss. So with um, regards to the way medications are generated across the board around the world, and that is that many of the experiments and tests for many medications are done only on men. And yet we know that, you know, female biology is very different in many regards. And there's a whole, you know, I don't know, Ray, have you got a uterus? Not last I checked. No. Um, but there's a whole lot of things where there are differences that need to be taken into account. A, because there are um, illnesses that just affect women. B, because some illnesses affect women differently. 
and see because medications presumably would affect you know different people in different ways so how does the you know this this sort of crispr cas9 work you were talking about sort of play into that with regards to you know what's used in the laboratories and what can be used and how that will change do you think yeah, I mean, it'd be a massive problem if everybody just started creating, you know, single sex litters of animals that were male only, mm. um, you know, because um, like you said, I mean, there there are huge issues where historically things have been tested largely on males. And, you know, now we're uncovering all sorts of differences, like you said. But I think for this technology itself, um, it would have to, it would come down to the researcher group because with the animals you were using, um, you have to sort of do your CRISPR-Cas9 at the level of embryo implantation and so if you were a breast cancer lab for example if you just specifically worked on that you know that you would want female mice for your study for example Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted to deal with the mammary glands and and experiment on those Um, I think the one of the best um, ways for this technology to work is um, like we were saying for um, farmers for for production of eggs so you do just have litters of of female chicks because all those male chicks are uh, we're we're joking about the male, male chicks but they are all slaughtered at birth in um, in a lot of agriculture so but um, within yeah it, it, it is a huge issue in research of the fact that people often don't take into account those sex specific differences um, for certain laboratories if you work on a certain tissue like the skin people will tend to use female mice for example mm. because male mice fight a lot and Do so they? yeah so their skin is scarred like, and oh. so there's so much inflammation going on in the skin. You, if you're looking at a certain immune population, for example, um, there's so much confounding factors because of all the scars and scratches and fighting, for example. So people tend to use female mice in those cases. But you need to be sure what you're working with translates into both sexes. You need to be aware of those differences. Yeah. And what, I mean, when, when you work on something like skin, I mean, how much differences are there? I mean, you, this is your area where you're it working is. on a lot of the, um, is it T-cells? Yes, it is. T's? Yes. Skin T-cells are the my good favorites. old T-cells. Um, why don't we give them good names? But anyway, it, that's another issue. But, but this is with regards to uh, immune cells that are very close to the surface of the body and yeah. they play such an you know, important role in the way we – is it our early response? Is that – yeah, the early yeah, yeah. responses early to response. viruses. Yeah. And, I mean, how is that different? Like, if you look at male and female mice or, or whatever you're looking at in that sense, I mean, do they differ, those sorts yeah, of cells? The, well, the skin's quite different. Mm. So um, the male skin is much thicker, and I think that's because of sort of the trauma throughout the flank of the body. But uh, maybe... <laughs> What kind of mice are you dealing with? <laughs> <laughs> Genetically modified ones. <laughs> Genetically modified fighting mice. But um, yeah. we, we, do, we look at um, human and male skin um, human and male skin male and female skin of humans the composition of the t-cells looks to be quite similar but it's different between different areas of the body where you've seen sun where you haven't you know generally if we work with skin we get discards so from tummy tucks or from breast reduction surgeries they generally come from women so we're actually more biased to working on female human skin um at first blush um, the T cells phenotypically look similar between both species, but you'd have to get in and really both do genome species. sequence. Um, well, between humans and, and mice. And mice. Oh, I thought you were saying men and women. And men and women between species Human and species. between sex. Oh, between them. Yeah. Okay. Between both, but you to really be sure. That's very biased going in and looking at certain yeah. molecules, which you know you have to do genome sequencing to be sure. Right. Yeah. And in, in terms of the, the, you know, these molecules, I mean, how deep do you go into the skin? Because when you mention things like sun damage and so forth, I mean, there's certain things that are obviously, I don't want to use the term skin deep, but they're relatively shallow. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm assuming these cells are they generated 
at the skin sort of level or are they generated further into the body and they propagate to the skin? Yeah, generally um, they're generated further, you know, within the circulation and then they'll go and they'll home to the skin and then they'll, they'll embed within the outer layers of the skin, within the outer um, compartments. And then they just hang there for... And then they hang there. For a Preventing long time. your melanoma. Preventing your melanoma. If they're T-cells, because obviously I've just taken it straight back to T-cells. <laughs> yeah. They're preventing your melanoma right now. Do we get T-cells in other parts of the body? In the blood? Yeah. Like, how are they different? Shane, thank you yeah. so much for just opening the door. Yeah, yeah. do it. My yeah, tell me. We're learning. We're learning right yeah. now. Well, okay, if, if, if we're chatting about it. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're really different. So um, that's sort of what I've been working on for lord probably 15 years um the differences between those in the circulation and those in the outermost compartments of the body and they have different properties a lot coming from the fact they're in these microenvironments and they change over time they sort of succumb to microenvironmental cues from being in different sites it changes their function their phenotype different molecules that they express the um sort of rate at which they can combat pathogens and cancer for example and this is why the field the t-cell field and these are sort of our white blood cells that can kill virus infections or kill cancer um, that's why it, it evolved so rapidly over the last five years with this appreciation because people were testing vaccines and they were being like oh is this vaccine going to be any good and then what readout are you going to do you're going to look in the blood right because mm. it's easy to get you know you can sample it very easily from patients but now we know they're, they're very different in the type of you know activity that they would have the antiviral activity for example and so now we know we need to go into those you know outer sites which to be honest is real pain because you've got to go and biopsy mucosal sites if you're testing various vaccines mm. so uh, forgive the aside and i know i'm going to murder this because i only read it briefly in one of the nature reports there was a study on covid vaccine response where instead they looked at all these different strains for vaccine response but instead of looking at antibodies they were actually looking at t-cell and b-cell response which was strong across the board for every strain and so I, I, I do get a little confused when I read the, we hear the news about how they talk about whether or not a vaccine might work because they're all talking about just antibody levels on the blood. And to me, it feels like they're missing something. In fact, I read that story and went, wait, don't I know someone that like discovered a type of B cell? And that was you, of course, Dr. Laura. So like, are we looking when we look at vaccines, should we be looking at more than the antibody response to understand them? 100 um, percent. You know, we're trying to mimic our natural immunity with a vaccine, right? And our body naturally does, you know, produces B cells that produce antibodies and they produce T cells that kill things. And you need both and they work together in synergy. It's cooperative immunity and that's what the body does. And that's what we want to do with a vaccine. But most vaccines are, are antibody-based. The antibodies that are being produced by the B cells, they don't induce T cells. And that's because T cells are um, harder to work with. We know less about them. A lot of, thing, of that, I think, has been confounded. The, the vaccines that have been tested, we've been using the blood as a readout, which is a problem when we're look, wanting mm. you know, immunity in the lungs or, yeah. the, or mucosa and so forth. So they've been really difficult to develop. So our first-generation COVID vaccines are all inducing antibodies um, because you know they were done quickly, they were done well, and it does give us good immunity but for really excellent long-term immunity we need both and this is actually if you've had covid you'll have amazing immunity because your body will have given you both the next generation covid vaccines that will be made people are trying to induce both and that's what everyone's talking about it how are we going to do it get both the antibodies and the t-cells working in synergy and they will be the best generation vaccines but they still uh you know the researchers are still working on this but for now because we needed it quick we've just got the antibodies it's still good but we need our boosters yeah, the boosters are, well, they're coming. They're coming. They're coming. I'm due in about a week. I'm due soon. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, I do whether I can book in and, because, you know, the booking system. 
let's face it, folks, it's not as good as Ticket Tech. Yeah. <laughs> when I was, I had these flashbacks from uh, being on the, you know, the line. I think to a Madonna concert in 982 or something, and how long that took to get tickets. And it was worse um, to get a vaccine in the early days. I know things have changed a lot, but yeah. it certainly uh, was not great. But we're, look, I think I think we're getting there. Um, and of course, if you haven't seen it, the information regarding five to eleven year olds uh, was released over the last 24 hours. The TGA are about to approve or have approved uh, of that. So this will become very very soon of course it will still be very close to the timing of the new school year um, starting so I, I i did a little calculation today figuring how, how much longer do i have to leave my nine-year-old in an exposed environment um every day you know because it's something that you know this is a big consideration yeah, of course it is, yeah. it, it, it's not every day because the frequency of school infections is rather high so, so you know there's a chance <laughs> you have them home for a couple yeah, of days true. That's but, true. Uh, That's true. And I was thinking, okay, there's ten. There's ten days left in the public school system um, in Victoria, and so at my school, we we um, you know, I happen to be the school council president, so I get to do these things. But we happen to approve the last two days as teacher training for 2022. So two curriculum days at the end, which we thought was um, good rather than waiting till next year get these things done while we're not in lockdown and we can. So that left eight days, um, half day for the last day. You know it's a half day. So that's seven and a half. Um, two days in the last week, nah, they're not going to do shit. So basically it's um, it's five days left. You are, have been calculating. Oh, I've been doing yeah, the numbers. Yeah, yeah. I've done the numbers. And so it's five days, five days of school. Now, remember, we've been told um, by, you know, various experts that the damage to mental health of the kids not being ex- at school is extraordinary, et cetera, et cetera. But five days. I don't know. It's a different equation for me now. I'm thinking about it. And I know a lot of people, you know, text me and send me messages saying, you know, what what should we do? And I think, well, you have to run these numbers against one another and say, okay, I could miss five days or maybe it could be up to 10 days. If you're at the private school, I think they're already, or they're finished on Wednesday, I think most of them. So they're, they're pretty much done. And versus the potential exposure of a virus where, you know, to be fair, we know that it's relatively mild in kids for the most part. That seems to be what's happening, but we don't know for sure what the longer term effects are in some children and um you know some of them are quite ill so it's a it's a risky business i think if you have my, my kid is an absolutely amazing mask wearer so you know that's, he just that's great wears it non-stop in the schoolyard you know to be fair i did have to get one with a millennium falcon on the front of it, so. <laughs> and i'm suddenly jealous yeah uh, oh, i got him a few right and, and these ones there was a few where, you know i found it really offensive that the ones i bought didn't come in adult sizes um, <laughs> yeah. so i only got them for my kid but yeah i mean this was something that really mattered and i think in terms of in terms of how we go about you know, convincing our kids to you know be careful at school, it's hard. You know, I got I got a kid with a bit of eczema and, you know, it is a battle to get the kid to keep a band aid on. So, you know, that's tough. So then you go to that next level and you say you've got to get kids to keep well, muscle. Yeah, the Millennium Falcon that seems like the way to go. Because also you need it to protect you, Shane, because if you have if you are, you know, not far away from your booster, your immunity's waning. Oh, Antibodies shit. only people. Really? You know, it's it's waning. So yeah. um and there are really great studies that have been showing the waning before the booster. The booster will really just ramp you right back up. And yep. so right before you have your booster, you are at risk again. So you really need to be careful. Well, you now want people around now you I'm wearing just masks. scared to death. Um, Sorry. <laughs> thanks for coming in the studio, yeah. you two. <laughs> just just giving you some uh, you know, <laughs> well, real immunology know-how. Reality check. But the, the other thing about the Millennium Falcon for the mask on the kid is you want the kid to be a great mask wearer. But the real challenge with children is to try to present that there's a risk, that there's ways, things you can do to mm. mitigate it without them becoming very fearful. 
Yeah. And, you know, when, when they see adults be concerned, that's a flag for kids that they know to be concerned. And but they don't calibrating that proportion and is, is always a challenge. So things like a Millennium Falcon mask, which makes it a little fun, doesn't remove the risk, but maybe helps mediate. I'm using yeah. this to yeah yeah and, and you're absolutely right Ray because I think the the interesting thing is we've gone through this with various other things so for example you know SunSmart has been a really good campaign over the years in various forms and we have kids wearing hats that you know in many cases I'd say look ridiculous they really do yeah. they don't look yeah. great they're not great they don't look great um, but the kids know and they accept the fact um, that you know this is important um, we don't show them you know uh, examples of you know I don't know what, what would it be some small animal under a UV lamp for a couple of days to show them what happens with the UV radiation to the body no we don't do that we don't need to scare them like that we can we can talk to them and it's similar you know the the massive increase in allergens um that many kids are experiencing you know so many kids allergic to so many things you know we have to be careful of that but we don't do it with fear you know the best way to do it is with knowledge and i think you know we can do this carefully with kids but there's there's still some risk and you know unfortunately we're we're in the city here in melbourne where the you know the case numbers are still i haven't checked today but they're pretty high um most days at the moment so it's not you know um, drove through a crowd of people uh, yesterday and there was, you know... Just while we're speaking of allergens, if I've got my immunology sort of righteous hat on, can we just, for goodness sake, roll them in the mud? Come on. <laughs> is, yeah. that, is that real? Is that, a, yes. is that, is that the thing? Yes, yeah. yes, it Because, really I mean, I, I grew up, you know, with animals and stuff. and Eat, yeah, eating yeah, dirt. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah we, we were just eating dirt and, you know, playing yeah. in the mud the whole time. Like, and... like, I remember as a child, it was fun to just go dig a hole. Like, yeah. dig a hole. That was, I mean, that, I mean, there might have been a matchbox car there, but the whole point was digging yeah. the hole in the dirt. And... No, that's good stuff. Now, look, I did want to mention a couple of things, though, because um, unfortunately we haven't managed to get the CEO of the Climate Council back online. But uh, there is some good news. Uh, with regards to the federal government's response um, to the COP26 uh, conference in um, in Glasgow. I, I got to clarify, this isn't sarcasm again? You're- no, I no. We, we, I, I thought that's where you were going. Because you said our government. Yeah. No, we signed, up, we signed up to the deforestation pledge. Okay. Be the silence there. The wait, least wait a minute. that could happen. Wait a minute. A, a country so full of trees, we have them burning down, we signed up to a deforestation pledge. Yeah, that's well, we did one thing. You got it, you know. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, uh, look, the, the rest was pretty, um, was pretty well, dim reading, folks, and I'm not going to go through it because I think most of you have probably seen some of it. We were hoping to hear uh, Amanda's views on this, but obviously the, you know, the, I think the next election is going to heat up with regards to this quite substantially because the amount that we're looking at in terms of reduction of um, emission of fossil fuels um, or use of fossil fuels and emissions is nowhere near what it needs to be. And what the other thing that's sort of come out of this, which is really disturbing, is there's a lot more focus at the moment on methane. And, you know, methane is a really strong greenhouse gas that we, we never talked about a lot in the past. You know, it was one that a few of us talked about, it actually, because there's a lot of greenhouse gases other than Two or CO4 four two. times more effective than yeah, CO2? Yeah, a, a, a lot more, I think. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, over 100 countries um, signed up to, you know, working on cutting these levels. And unfortunately, um, we weren't one of them, which I think is a real tragedy because it's an area where we could do we could do some real good. It's it's also to me, I think back to you know the ozone problem that we had you know decades ago and how everyone you know really got behind you know the reduction of the use of CFCs and so forth and and how successful that was as a campaign worldwide. And I think you know we're, we're there again. You know what what's what's the big deal? Let's let's yeah, do what's it, important. It, but it, it is a single target, right? Methane, like just yeah, like yeah. Like CFCs, the one thing everybody could do something about. You could yep. get a phase-out plan. Yep. 
Yeah, and look, yeah. Uh, to be fair, over a hundred countries have actually signed up to to dealing with this. So, so that's that's a good thing overall. But you know, by and large, if you look at the outcomes of the conference, we're heading towards well above two degrees. Um, it's it's not good. Um, we don't have much time. I think things are um, you know things are in trouble. With all these other countries signing up, wouldn't that be a bit of a peer pressure to be like you know you don't want to look like the one who's not signing up because that's not really a good look for the planet. Does that not play into you just saying yes? Uh, we're good, the MCG. Yeah, we've got kangaroos. Uh, yeah. yeah, no. Anyway, we don't bad, need it, it's bad stuff. It, it is a problem, but we we need to um, obviously we need to apply a lot more pressure on this because it's it's something that's problematic. And for those of us who have been broadcasting about this for a bloody long time, um, it's really troubling. Um, when when I gave this talk uh, just over uh, you know the other day at um, the Science Teachers Association of Victoria, and I gave the same one at La Trobe University or similar one, um, one in person, one online, so they're very different actually. But one of the things I reflected on was um, a book that I have. Um, and it was printed in um, 1956. And the reason I talked about this book is because it has some really interesting science in there. So, for example, it tells you there's 31 moons in total in the solar system. Jupiter and Saturn alone have over 120. So, you know, it's kind of a bit outdated. Um, it also talked about the, the way in which mountains were made. And that was the, the old shrinking apple model of the world. So, you know, it's like an apple. You know, it dries out, starts to shrink, you get ripples. That's what was happening. Nothing about plate tectonics or... You know, that was sort of a bit outdated. Um, but the one thing it had in there that was really clear and still correct today is that humans are causing our climate to shift. And it talked about that. And that was back in the 50s. And there are so many examples of the science being on top of many of these things even long before that. So, you know, there's no, there's no question about this. This is not something we're debating anymore. What we are trying to work out is just how bad it's going to get. So I think that's, that's where we're kind of left with all these things. And that's, that's why it's so problematic and why most scientists are involved in this work or involved in environmental work or ecology or any of these things are like just pulling their hair out thinking, you know, how much clearer do we need to make it because it's, it's out of control. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break for some um, important station announcements and some music. And when we come back, we'll be actually talking about the type of effect that the noise from wind farms have on us humans when we're trying to sleep, which is a kind of cool topic, actually. Triple ah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with me now is Professor Peter Catchside. He is from the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health and the College of Medicine and Public Health at Flinders University. Good morning, Peter. How are you going? Good, thanks, Shane. Good morning. How are you? Good. Look, it's good to talk to you. How is uh, life over there in Adelaide? Uh, hectic. Hectic, but pretty good. We can't really complain in this state compared to you guys who've done it really tough, but uh, yeah, we're going good. Excellent to hear. Now, you work in an area which is um, really interesting to me. And first of all, that's sort of the whole field of sleep health. Give us a bit of an overview of how sleep health is going as a, as a field, because I know like you guys have so much more technology and so many more ways to monitor people now. I mean, what's sort of changed over the last 20 years in sleep health? Oh, lots. Um, well, lots and little. I mean, it's an interesting field to be in. Um, the traditional ways that we usually evaluate sleep have not actually changed very much, so we stick electrodes on people's heads, um, and that's really the gold standard way of working out whether someone is electrophysiologically asleep or awake and what sort of state of sleep they are in. They are in. Um, sleep's a really dynamic 
thing we we tend to think of it you go to sleep and then you wake up in the morning but there's a lot that goes on and changes across mm. the night um, there are a lot of um, changes in consumer technology that um, to some extent measures some aspects of sleep sleep behavior so sort of actigraphy wristborn devices that make inferences about sleep but they're not really that reliable they don't directly measure the kind of electrophysiological changes that so they've got a lot better um, and they, they give us a pretty good guide but uh, if you want to do sort of hardcore sleep measurements you still really need to stick electrodes on people's heads and i guess there's you know signal processing computer power has got a lot better so there's new and emerging and, and actually some quite old techniques for looking at um, those sorts of signals in more depth than the traditional kind of manual scoring of mm. sleep, which we've, we actually still use, and that derives from the 1960s. So, you know, there's a lot that's changing pretty fast. Mm. And, and there's some new discoveries coming out that are making us think that actually, you know, we take sleep too much for granted. It's actually a really important part of our physiology and health, and if we don't, get enough of it or if it gets disrupted regularly then you know inevitably there are potentially quite bad consequences for next day performance function and and, and probably longer term health yeah i think a lot of us have felt that from time to time uh, for various reasons now you you've been looking into the effects of certain noise parameters around our sleep and, and what's happening and you've been in in particular looking at wind farm noise and road traffic noise i mean why the i mean i know there's a lot of interest in in wind farms and so forth and the effects that they may or may not have um but why the pairing of those two things in particular good question um well we became aware that there was uh community concern around potential impacts on sleep of wind farm noise um and we felt well that's a very, you know, that's an important question to be answered because we know noise disrupts sleep. I mean, that's been known for a long time. There's a, a very large literature on traffic noise-related sleep disruption, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, and really it's dose-dependent. You know, the louder it is, the more disrupting to sleep it is. So we felt that, you know, research needed to be done in this area to try and clarify what, you know, what the um, anticipated impact of noise on sleep would be because, you know, noise, we should expect noise to disrupt sleep and that's really how much. So we felt a need to really do a head-to-head comparison of wind farm noise compared to um, a better understood comparator. So that's why we've chosen road traffic noise. And, and wind farm noise is it's, uh, it's not the same thing. It's got different components to it. It's very low frequency. It's got some amplitude modulation kind of throbbing elements to it and it depends how close you are if you get close then it's got some sort of swish components as well that's more of a problem in in europe than it is in australia where distances are usually further further back Um, but it does have some features that um, make us think that it could well be more disruptive to sleep um, and more annoying potentially compared to other noise types so really we've designed a, a study really to answer those basic questions first you know how much does it disrupt sleep compared to other noise types um before we then do the much harder studies looking at sort of longer term health effects which you know they're really difficult studies to do to really understand yeah. what the impacts are and, and so so what's the the outcome of the initial stuff with regards to wind, wind farm noise compared to traffic noise and I, I, I suppose the comparison but also what's the baseline there in terms of the disruption to our sleep are they, is it problematic at all 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> difficult questions. Um, we, we've still got quite we, well. I'll, I'll, we've finished a pilot study, and we've got a number of publications that have come out. And um, I'm talking to you today because of one of those uh, where we've done. Uh, we took some healthy volunteers, put them in a lab for a single night, and played them a whole range of noises across the night when they were asleep. Um, traffic noise, wind farm noise at different sound pressure levels. And we kind of spanned the full range of what you would normally expect to see in the environment. In fact, we went higher than normal. Um, and we, we found basically that, as expected, noise disturbs sleep, um, road traffic and wind farm noise. And the louder it is, the more it disrupts sleep. Uh, and we, in this particular study, we used some Fourier-based analysis, so power spectrum analysis, to look at sleep in more detail than we would traditionally look. And when we do that, we do find there are some very subtle differences between the noise types, that there, there may be a bit of a sign that wind farm noise is a bit more disruptive at lower sound pressure levels compared to road traffic noise. And in fact, at the other end of the scale, it's possible that what it looks like from our data that road traffic noise might actually be more disruptive than wind farm noise when you get above about 40 decibels. So, you know, complex um, kind of findings. Having said that, the, the effects were really small and subtle um, to the point where we could see changes in the frequency of brain activity during sleep, but it really didn't disrupt sleep itself particularly much. People occasionally wake up, but it's pretty rare for both noise types at those sorts of levels. Really, you need higher levels to really wake people up. Yeah, I, I mean, this, this is fascinating stuff because I, I can imagine, you know, way back when at some point there was some evolutionary advantage in us being somewhat aware of our environment when we were sleeping but our brains and our physiology somehow saying, okay, that noise is at the level where I don't have to come out of my sleep, but my brain is doing something so that it, you know, it is actually aware of it and in some way processing it and saying, no, nope, not too, too much of a problem. Is that, is that sort of the way this is playing out? Absolutely. There's, you know, we do hear in sleep and, you know, we can, we, we can wake up to pretty much any stimulus if it's, if it's big enough. Um, mm. And if you look closely at the physiology during sleep, you can see a number of features that seem to be protective of sleep. So, so for example, if someone bangs a door or there's a bit of a noise, um, you will see a, a small heart rate rise, your skin blood flow shuts down, and that's basically shunting blood to the core, so your heart, brain. There's a bit of an activation response, and that's probably getting the body ready to jump out of bed and defend itself. Mm. Um, but often you see those responses, but actually if you look at the brain activity, there is a very small response uh, and then it goes, it, basically you don't get pulled out of sleep. There are some features, there's something called a K-complex, which is believed to be a, a kind of a, a sensory processing step where some low-level system is evaluating the stimulus and going, no, nah, don't, don't worry about it, we're going stay asleep it's more important to stay asleep than react to that particular threat and that depends very much on the depth of sleep that you happen to be in when you hear the stimulus um well you don't hear it because you're not conscious but the low level systems that are responding to it so if you're in deep sleep you actually need much louder noises or much more stronger stimuli to drag you out of sleep um in light sleep you don't need very much at all yeah in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is somewhere in the middle. It's it's an unusual stage where the brain is really very active. It's probably putting memories um, mm. when they should be, um, reorganising itself, rewiring, um, uh, and that's somewhere that's actually 
Sometimes it's easy to wake people out of REM, sometimes it's hard. It sort of depends on the stimulus. It's mm. an unusual stage. And, and when you do this testing, do you uh, give people sort of noises that are sort of relatively abrupt or is it sort of a, like a background noise that you apply? Because I can imagine in, in both the – well, especially in the wind farm scenario, there'd be a background noise level that wouldn't change over time very significantly. With the traffic scenario, it'd probably be both, I suspect. You know, every now and then the ambulance goes by, but you've also got that background ambient noise from traffic that's there all the time. I mean, how did you like or what types of noises did you use in this study compared to those two yeah good good questions um so there is always background noise even you know we've engineered our sleep lab to be very low background noise it's about 19 decibels which is pretty low compared to sort of a normal urban environment it's probably more like 25 30 decibels at night uh in the field in in rural areas you can get remarkably low background noises not the background noise levels you know sub 10 decibels so eerily quiet and when you've got noises i mean it's really any noise is how much does it stick up above the background so yep. we we've got the background noise level in our lab as low as we can get it and it's not nearly as low as you can get in the field um we didn't have enough money to get to engineer the lab that good um so we've chosen um, uh, basically a, a reasonable, uh, about a 10 decibel, um, 6 to 10 decibel above background is kind of our lowest level, and then we've gone up higher from that. Uh, and that's really how we've designed the study. They are reasonably abrupt onset noises, but they're, they're actually pretty quiet, so we haven't ramped them up. And it... it so, and you get a bit of both in re- in real world. Um, you know, wind farm noise can be very constant over time, mm-hmm. and it can also have abrupt changes. You know, the wind can shift, um, wind direction can change. Uh, you can get gusts. So, you know, it is it does have both sort of constant ongoing features as well as occasional abrupt changes. Mm. And in in terms of the so, you know, the sort of overall outcome here is that. You know, from your studies, the sound issues around wind farms are not causing sleep disruption in a way that manifests itself in people waking up or anything like that. Uh, well, I'm not confident to, to give you definitive answers on any of that just yet. I'm hoping we can do that pretty soon. Um, so we've done a pilot study. We've got a bunch of papers coming out of that. We've finished the main lab trial where we've actually taken a much bigger group of people. So the first study we've reported was 20 healthy young individuals. Um, the biggest study is 68 individuals, and they've done a whole bunch of experiments, actually. We've, the main study is to look at the dose response effects of the two different noise types. But we've also got, they're actually, they've been in the lab for seven nights. Um, some nights they get nothing. One night they got wind farm noise all night. Uh, another night they got wind farm noise only when they were asleep. Another night only when they were awake. So we've actually tried to look at all of the elements of sleep problems that we thought might be important. And it's not just about dragging someone awake when they are asleep. It's also the ability of people to achieve sleep in the first place Mm. in the presence of a noise. So, um, and so far from the work we've done now that I can talk about, we haven't found any big, strong signals that wind farm noise is any more disruptive compared to um, road traffic noise. But we there's some caveats to that because what we don't yet know is if it depends on prior experience and attitudes, um, habituation effects. So in the big study, we've got four different groups of people. We've got people who've come from a wind farm 
um, exposed area and have self-reported that they do have sleep problems. Another group who come from a similar area that say they don't have any problems. Uh, we've got another group who come from a quiet rural area without any, you know, they're used to a, a quiet background. And then we've taken urban residents who live pretty close to a main road. Um, so we're really keen to find out what, you know, the relative impacts of, um, the, you know, those different groups, yeah. how they respond under the different conditions. And that will tell us a great deal, I think, about yeah. Well, it's, look, it's it's super interesting stuff, Peter, and I, I think um, it's it's great that you guys have such a you know fine sort of focus on how these things affect sleep, even when it doesn't wake us up. And I think that's fascinating how the body is sort of so aware of its environment, even though um, we don't necessarily wake up and we're not even aware of what's going on. It's it's just it's just amazing stuff. Thanks so much so much for talking to us on Einstein and Gogo today. And uh, you know what what do you do to sleep? Richard? You know, wish you a good night's sleep tonight. I suppose is the way to go. So great talking to you. Um, good luck with the extra work. Thanks very much, Shane. Thanks. See you. Folks, that was was Professor Peter Catchside from the Adelaide Institute of Sleep Health at Flinders University. And, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. I think, uh, I don't know about you guys in the studio here, Laura and Dr. Ray, but one thing I've found that I'm loving as a result of the work from home scenario is that I haven't used an alarm clock in two years. And I'm waking up feeling, feeling great. I just wake up the sun. I assumed you were just going to say more naps throughout the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought that was weird. I, I, I'm sitting there wondering um, how does, you know, he's talking about noises from sleep disruption. And now I'm really worried about my partner because I snore really loudly. Oh. But she seems to be able to sleep through anything. So you're so. just like road traffic. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah, she uh, says she's not waking up, but who knows the impact long term yeah. that you're having on her? Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you more more up, guilt to bear. If you hooked up some electrodes to her head, you would just see these spikes in activity. <laughs> Annoyance. Yeah. Uh, Spikes of night. anger. <laughs> Let's go with annoyance. Anger. And the body's primed to get up and just, you know, Attack. start whacking you <laughs> all through the night. I'm not sure this is a good thing, Dr. Ray. Um, but the, yeah, especially since I woke up with a short, sore shoulder this morning. Yeah. Where did it come from? Yeah, where it's come from. I love that. I think it's something that's. But, but it, is, it is interesting to me. Like, I've found that I, I do wake up with more energy and more refreshed, not being ripped from the middle mm. of my REM cycle by some god awful alarm clock um just so that you can get somewhere in a certain at a certain time so for me you know look there's not many good things that have come out of this pandemic but that's one of them and it certainly has changed the way in which you know i'm i'm sort of sleeping and and i'm actually getting up earlier so dr jen who many listening to the show know who's on the show as well and and on breakfasters you know we we're the two early risers and uh we're having a little comp in the uh, in the 2022 as to who's up earliest the most times. So I'm not sure how that will play out, um, probably with both of us looking older by the end of the year, but <laughs> we're, we're certainly going to... It was it was established by Elizabeth McCartney from Triple R here that, you know, we would have this competition. So I'm just going to be getting up at 4 o'clock every day. I'm winning. I'm going to win. So there's no doubt about it. That's Morning, people. Well, I, there I think we will see the naps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Join me in some afternoon naps. Well, you know, I'll probably take a nap after I get this booster shot we're talking about. Because yeah. I know after, after my second Pfizer uh, injection, I was a little bit... Um, Nappy. A little, little bit nappy. Yeah. I was a bit yeah. <laughs> I was a bit broken, but hey, better than COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn better than COVID. But but knock me around a little bit. I think every now and then people have that, that reaction. But um that's good. It tells me my immune system is doing stuff. That's what I say. I love that reaction. It's just like my immune system's awesome. 
Yeah. There we go. And it's, it's doing a big doing job. The reason you feel so bad is because it's doing a big job, which takes time. So, yeah, anyway. Folks, uh, we're going to hand over in a moment to the amazing team from Eat It. Uh, Cam is over there. Uh, you know, he's been going back to the market, doing all the usual stuff. So um, things are getting back to normal, which is great. And I think Matt Stedman's in there as well. I can't see him. Um, they're only about 20 meters from me, but there is this amazing reflection from my window of the outside uh, sunny Melbourne day. So I'm just mm-hmm. assuming they're in there somewhere. Dr. Laura, great to see you in the studio. It was such a pleasure to come and chat science on a Sunday morning again. I miss this. Yeah, back to normal. Look at us. It's a good yeah. thing. Back to normal. Dr. Ray, good to see you again. I think we saw each other more recently. but uh, Yeah, but love to be back in the yeah, studio. Always good. And folks, uh, we've only got a couple of shows to go. So we've got um, one more sort of, I'll call it a normal show next week. But then um, the final show, which is always a lot of fun, the week after that. So until then, remember science is everywhere. We will chat to you again in seven days. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.